Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. Oh, do you now? <laughs> I do. Uh, I want to know, is the commission of crimes absolute metaphysics? Absolute metaphysics? <laughs> yes. So, they're, the, the, well, yes, the, um, the pattern of the future, which is woven by the great beings, yes. <laughs> um, follows a very clear outline. Yes. And if you violate that outline by cutting a thread short, right. the seers of our society will, will sense that in the future and uh, pre-cog it, one might say. <laughs> so pre-cogging is now a verb? Mm-hmm. And pre-cogs <laughs> is a noun. So wait, if you pre-cog something... Uh, is that you cogging it before you cog it? There's a lot of cogs in the universe as well. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't sound very different. In fact, from... people think that the base reality is cogs. Oh. Mm-hmm. Like at the physical level? At the very, you know, below atom is the cog. Below quarks? Below quarks is the cog. They're called cogs? Hey, no, but... <laughs> Who came up with cogs? Me, just now. Oh, okay. <laughs> isn't that kind of, though, like, isn't that... That sounds a little bit like predestination. Isn't that um, John Calvin? He was. He believed in predestination, yes. Yeah. So he, he was the guy that... Was there a philosopher before him who talked about that, or was there... Well, predestination would just be fatalism, right? It's just like, I mean, essentially the Greeks believed in fate. Right. Okay. So predestination would just be your fate is sealed before you're born. So like, your answer is yes? Yes. <laughs> okay. So you believe in predestination. Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I guess we'll find out. I guess we'll find out, yes. (laughs) So yeah, today we are doing the 2002 film Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise and Colin Farrell, Max von Sydow, and Tim Blake Nelson was the Gideon guy, the guy who played the organ. Yes. And then a couple other people who you probably recognize. I recognize them, but I don't remember their names. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. And it was based on... This is our first uh, Tom Cruise film, too. Is it? We have not done another film with Tom Cruise in it. Oh. Well, really true fiction first. There you go. <laughs> um, get, and out it was, the, get out of the closet, Tom Cruise. Yeah, and it was based on a... Uh... <laughs> oh, good. Now Scientology is going to sue us. <laughs> it was based on a short story I read... And I forgot to, I didn't even Wikipedia research this yet. A short story by Philip K. Dick. And I don't know if it was called Minority Report or not, but it was based on that. So, and I got the sense watching it that there definitely were some like world building things in it that didn't really make sense as just a movie because they were just like in and out that probably got built up more in the story. Right. Right. Like maybe John, Tom Cruise, John Anderton, his relationship to that 
tech guy. Like that's just kind of taken for granted in the movie. You don't have time to build that up. Do you know what I mean? Like just there are some relationships that were exposited into the and story. Maybe those are maybe those are nods to the the original story. This is what I'm thinking. Yeah, probably like the right. the fans of the book mm-hmm. as as makers of films tend to do when they're using yeah source material. Well, and I I watched it. We both watched it kind of last night again, and I had watched it a week previous. And even watching it last night, not taking notes because I already had the time before when I watched it, I was like, hmm. There's just a lot of things narratively in this movie that are kind of just not very well developed, actually that I think are just probably much better developed in the short story, but wouldn't have been good in the movie. Right. Like, that would have been good in the movie, you think? Well, I just don't think they had enough time. Right. Right? Like, maybe if they make Minority Report into a TV show one day. Like, I think that this is I mean, is that'd be interesting of... to watch crime decline in D.C. Yeah. over the years that the precogs are well, doing Well, okay, here's this. a good example of what I mean. That lady who, cre- or the, the head of the precogs, or the lady who, I don't even know the right word, invented them or discovered them or made them, I mean, obviously in the lore, she has a huge role, but she's just kind of talked about in the movie, has one scene, and then that's it, right? Like, I imagine if you were going to expand it, like, you'd have to have her be a more central character. Or maybe you do, like, a prequel where she is the central character. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The development of this. And you still have the murder, but Mm -hmm. no, you don't have any resolution for that. Because it's just, uh, it seemed to me like if you weren't really closely paying attention, you wouldn't have any idea who she is. Because there's only like one line where they even talk about her, you know? So, right. Be, seeing as I was paying more attention to this movie, like when this movie came out, I was 15. And so when I first saw it the first few times, I definitely did not know who she was. Right. <laughs> right? Like just appeared, just yeah. some lady in the movie that Tom Cruise goes to talk to to figure out how do I, how do I find my minority report? Yeah. What is it? Hmm. You know? It's like, oh, okay. Someone told him. But it's like to know that she was the person who made the precogs. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. And I imagine, because another really true fiction guarantee is we will not read books that we don't want to to talk about movies about them. Exactly. <laughs> and we don't do extra research. Is that I imagine her character is more developed and her work more explained in the book than it was in the movie. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that. Yeah. So uh, before we get into what it... What other books a, has this Dick fellow written? Philip K. Dick? Yeah. He's the other guy who did like around the time of Asimov. Um, But before we like do a plot rundown and start diving in, if you're only listening to this on audio, this is our first ever YouTube episode. We're live right now on YouTube. Yes, so we are doing our best to foray into a new medium. So we're going to probably start a, a YouTube channel for Really True Fiction where we at least upload audio. So you could have it on YouTube as well. And um our good friend Chris is facilitating our live stream. studio. Hi, right Chris. Now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> and so that's exciting. Probably if you are watching this on YouTube, you obviously don't need me to tell you that this is on YouTube. <laughs> Doesn't mean I won't tell you it's on YouTube. But if this is, uh, if you're listening to this in the more conventional podcasting audio only, if you want to see our uh, beautiful faces, you can find us on YouTube as well. Yeah. Episode forty-seven, Minority Report, unedited. Unedited, so you won't you won't get uh, <laughs> you'll Luke's get very skilled audio editing. In you'll this get song. a lot more ums, <laughs> uhs, likes, and, pauses, potentially and, more stupid David phrases. Uh, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I was not going to say it. And 
in the spirit of that, I think David and I were just kind of talking about this a little bit the other day. One of the biggest reasons we even started this podcast, obviously, as you can tell, we like to talk about stories, but one of the biggest reasons is we want to figure out ways to connect with other people who like to talk about stories, who like to talk about philosophy, who like to talk about ideas. And so we would love to hear from you if you have any thought about like, oh, in this episode at 47 minutes, 12 seconds, uh, you said this thing. What did you mean by that? Like, that's actually something we're really interested in. So if you ever want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. Um, you can search us up on Facebook. We have a Facebook page as well, Really True Fiction. Uh, what else? How else can they... If you email us, maybe we can start a texting friendship as well. Oh, right. right? Yes, that's true. <laughs> and you can you can message us on Facebook. Yeah. And then I think also... We have a want... Twitter, but we haven't really... Uh... Oh, we do? Yes, we do. Oh, I didn't even know that. <laughs> we have no followers. I'm not following As you can anyone, tell, David, but... I do a great job of communicating. <laughs> Social media is meant to communicate, but uh, David and I still figured that out. <laughs> Actually, we have like 10,000 followers, Luke. I meant to tell you. Uh... <laughs> it's mostly me tweeting at Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> who knew it'd be really true fiction to take him down hey <laughs> who knew who knew and then i guess we also like if you were wanting to go find the full catalog of really true fiction we don't have a website yet but we're hoping to in the not too distant future but in the meantime you can find all the episodes at really true fiction dot libsyn.com so that's really true fiction all one word dot libsyn l-i-b-s-y-n.com and then that's just where you can also they find are. them all on uh, Apple Podcasts. Yeah, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you search really true fiction and then subscribe, that's great. Uh, and if you feel so inclined to leave a review or a rating, that's a really good way to help new people find the show who might enjoy it. Or another good way is if you think that people enjoy it, to just let them know. Word of mouth is a really powerful way. Um, I like to tell my friends about podcasts I like. So if this is a podcast that you happen to think is worth your time or worth your while, please feel free to share it with anyone. We would really appreciate it as we are looking to grow the community. Yes. All right. So let's get into this. <laughs> Minority Report. So uh, this this was a f- pretty famous movie when it came out. I yeah, remember, I, I having... remember my dad really enjoying it and being excited to show it to me. I guess I would have been 13. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I remember finding it a little bit haunting and scary. Oh, really? What was the scary part? Well, there's a few jump scenes. That's like, true. Uh, and the then... Run! Yeah, and the music yeah. pumps up. Yeah, that's for sure. And then also where she grabs him out of the pool and mm-hmm. like says, do you see it? Like, yeah. Are... So basically, we're set in a world. Uh, the year is 2054, Washington, D.C. And for the last six years, the Department of Pre-Crime has been in operation. And pre-crime is a department of the Washington PD where they can predict murders before they happen using these three people called precognitives or precogs for short who have visions of the future basically and their visions they're not what would you even, they're like <laughs> i think metaphysically resonant and true visions things that will actually happen not might happen yeah and so the police use these visions by these precogs to arrest people for murders that they have not yet committed but definitely will commit And so Tom Cruise, John Anderton is his name. He's the kind of police chief of this division. There's a great scene at the beginning where we see how pre-crime works. Stop a murder like a second before it happens kind of thing. Then all the people who get brought in are haloed, they're called. They're basically put into some sort of like semi-conscious state. Uh, Apparently you can have visions, but you're like incapacitated. So Yeah, they're just kind of left 
in this stasis yeah. forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe, what is it? Gideon calls them his flock. Yes. <laughs> Which yeah. is so funny. Yeah, definitely some Christian overtones yeah. <laughs> to this. What happens is that the pre-crime comes for John. So he finds out that the he the precogs have a vision of him committing a murder. And the reason for this is that he has discovered a story about one of the precogs and it turns out that it's her mother who was ended up being killed and because he brought it up to the wrong person, dun 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 dun, the director of precogs sends this after him. And so most of the movie is him trying to figure out why he's supposed to kill this guy he's never met. Turns out he thinks he's supposed to kill him because this guy uh, is the guy who killed his son or kidnapped his son and then killed him. And his son was, I think, six when that happened. Yeah. Um, Stolen from a pool. Right. Yeah. So he is supposed to kill this guy. Uh, he was supposed to find this minority report where the precogs disagree, but no, it's actually he's supposed to kill him. But then there's this great scene where he just doesn't, and he finds out that there's been a setup. This guy's been paid by someone to pretend like he killed his son. And so then through funny plot contrivances, he this guy does end up dying by his own hand, but it looks like John kills him. And then throughout all of this, Colin Farrell's character, Danny Whitwer, who's a kind of federal cop, is investigating. And it's it's great, actually, narratively how... The whole movie were set up as Danny being the antagonist to John, but really he's his greatest ally in the end. Yeah, and well, and then he gets but then trusts the wrong guy because the guy who's actually behind everything is uh, Lamar Burgess, the director of Pre Crime, and basically Lamar Burgess killed Agatha, who's one of the precognitives. He killed her mom when she wanted Annie. her and lively, yeah, when yeah, she wanted lively. her back. And he made it seem like an echo, which is this thing that the precogs can kind of like deja vu, basically. So he got away with it. But Agatha basically makes John see this and John figures it out with the help of his wife and a couple other people. And so by the end of the movie, John puts Lamar in a kind of a no-win situation where if he kills Lamar, if Lamar kills John, the precogs are right and they can become federal, which is the goal of Lamar from the beginning, is to bring this all across the whole country. But he'll be haloed because he was about to commit murder. So he wouldn't be alive or co- or conscious to see it all happen. But if he doesn't kill John, it means the precogs are wrong and they won't get to do it. And yeah. so Lamar ends up killing himself, which I'm not sure if that's how it goes in the book or not. But anyway. Well, interestingly enough, a couple of things on that is, um, so Laura shows up and you know threatens to get get tom cruise's character out of the situation mm-hmm. or out of the halo situation and she has a gun and she, she's right. threatening the guy but like there's no murder anymore <laughs> so why aren't the precogs seeing this that was a little bit of a maybe i thought a plot hole when who had the gun well, on who when she, when when laura brings the gun in and says i want to see my husband right right like she he's gonna know she's not gonna kill him. Oh, there's Gideon! No sil- yeah, there's no get. There's no silence oh, well, going could, for Gideon. She, she could shoot him in the shoulder. That's true. She doesn't have to kill him, <laughs> right? Kill him. Yeah, true. <laughs> Which is another she funny could part. Cause pain. Yes. Right? And so anyway, I actually really like the plot of this movie. I think it's it's a good twist. It's a good kind of who done it, who's setting who up, like what's happening. There's a few diversions of our attention because it turns out the minority report like the name of the movie and what Tom Cruise actually thinks happened to him is, is this great red herring. Yeah. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah. 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 And yet 
the implications of the minority report are really important to the overall structure of pre-crime. Right? And that you can make you can mm-hmm. you can actually well, I like the whole, if you know the future, you can change it. Yes. Right? That, yeah. that seems to be the whole... There are a lot of really awesome philosophical sprinklings throughout the movie. The movie itself doesn't dwell on them too much, although you and I can. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's what we do. Yeah, which we will get into. So, yeah. I don't know. Like, I love this movie. I really do. I, I The CG... The only thing that hasn't, I say, age well is the CGI. Everything else seems... Well, like you said, it's fairly, fairly old. Yeah. So I think. Well, two thousand two. Yeah, I mean that's what eighteen <laughs> Which I guess years is, ago now. Like that's, that's so not fucked up, eh? <laughs> that that something eighteen years old, like two thousand two, is old. Yeah, I mean, people weren't even born that are now adults. Mm-hmm. But this is one of those movies that I feel like kind of at the time everyone knew about. Yeah. Watched. I think I think everyone kind of talked about it. Well, not every obviously not everyone, but. I think it was it was one of those big popular movies mm-hmm. that had a cool twist. It was like a Nolan movie before Nolan. Yeah, and I mean, before there were superhero movies every year, right? Or superhero movies kind of dominated. There like there were just blockbuster movies that could be not superhero movies. I guess. Yeah. Like really well marketed, well talked about, interesting movies that got into the public consciousness in a way that are basically only superhero movies do now. Yeah. You know? And that's the kind of the category I would say Minority Report fit in. Yeah, there was a time when, like, your Bravehearts or your Gladiators, because Gladiator was 2000, I think. Mm-hmm. You could get big movies, yeah. blockbusters. That weren't superhero that movies. That weren't superhero movies. I, bl- I swear. I mean, you still got Star Wars, or is that a superhero movie? No, but, it's, well, I don't want to waste too much right, effort okay. on the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and or the sequ- sequels. Force Awakens was really good. That's true. Rogue One was really good. Rogue One was great. We can leave it at that. Okay. Um, I really enjoy like the way that they set up John in this movie because the very first scene is showing him going through the visions. I mean, it's a really cool kind of visual motif they use of like these kind of translucent television screens, I guess, that he's using to see them. And I like that he's like a the way he's moving, he's kind of set up as a maestro, hey? And well, the, he's playing classical music. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's it's witnessing mastery of a of a mm-hmm. not a, of a form. It's a mastery of a form. Actually, I think that's the part of the movie that everyone remembers. Yeah. It's like when they have he has yeah, the yeah, gloves yeah. and he's moving the pictures mm-hmm. around and he's with the classical just able movie, yeah. to do all that. I mean, I I still hope that one day we're able to, that. But I mean, I'm not sure what the purpose of something like that would be. Well, but. I I like I think. One of the great things about doing this podcast has made me pay so much more attention to narrative and how it functions and basically like really subtle foreshadowing. So the I would relate his maestro-ness in those moments to why he's so competent later on. Like it's a kind of, we see manifest what the maestro can do, not just how they move, right? Right. Because part of the maestro motif is someone who's the best at something yes right right and later we see john anderton is the best at subverting pre-crime right (laughs) right which is kind of cool so like that's just what i feel it's um especially because he's because he's the master of it he understands it and and he understands the thing controls the thing right or um the virtuoso of pre-crime of pre-crime right yeah and again good storytelling 
often does limit cases of like, who's the best at something? Who's the worst? That's like very compelling. So I liked that, that aspect. But the first part that was kind of real life oriented that I wanted to bring up with you was, um, so part of the overarching, like the overarching story is that John Anderton is grieving the loss of his son, both because he feels personally responsible for the loss of his son and then just the sting of that. Yeah. Um, one of the ways he deals with this is he be, he's become a drug addict, right? Um, I think it's Neroin. I think Neroin, it's, yeah. Neroin it's called. Sounds like it's just a derivative of heroin, basically. Yeah. And so this was something I wanted to bring up with you was because he takes drugs, Danny Whitwer especially casts doubt on the veracity and reliability of him in other areas. And I thought that was interesting, kind of like a stigmatization of, oh, you're a drug user, so how can we trust you in these other areas? Right. Or I'm out to get you, or like, I'm going to... So I don't know, like, I've known people in my life who've taken drugs and who seem perfectly capable, and I know people who don't. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on drug usage to how you might view that person in other areas of their life. Hmm. <laughs> well, that's not a small question, I guess. No, it's not, but that's a huge part of this movie. That's, well, yeah. Right? Like, it's a huge part of the Well, obviously, part. he's using drugs to cope, mm -hmm. right? And he's coping with right. some pretty heavy pain. Mm -hmm. So, I, I guess my... Well, how does it... I have a lot of... I know a lot of people who, who use cocaine recreationally or MDMA or marijuana, in my mind, is barely a drug. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, it's right. uh, most people... It's like tamer than alcohol, in my opinion. Mm. But I can see how there are people, particularly at that time when that movie came out in 2002, but even now, who would stigmatize people who use drugs. Mm, um, right. I personally think that the problem is generally not the drug. It's um, the psychological pain that's being covered up with the drug. Mm -hmm. I think I've brought this up before, but, but my friend Thomas Hunt often uses the phrase, uh, you know, stone cold reality is very hard to take stone cold sober. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have ways of dealing with reality. If it's not a substance, it might be a, a, an obsession with traveling. Right. Or it might be, um, you know, uh, one of the great movies that go, goes into this that we'll probably do one day is Requiem for a Dream. Right? <laughs> Where, I mean, it's oh, yeah. a great reflection on drug use, but but the different kind of addictions that people have. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's stigma... I, I think there. Are, I think it's obvious that there are people who feel uh, a certain judgment towards people who use drugs. Right. Yeah. Personally, I do not. But I would warn anyone who wants to go down that path mm -hmm. that you're engaging with a danger you probably don't understand. Sure. Yeah. Because it's. Imp I mean, I've never. I've never used hard drugs, but I've. Uh, abused alcohol mm -hmm. and in doing so have realized w what that cycle might be like on okay. to a lesser degree where you slowly descend into covering your pain or your or your whatever you want to call it mental illness or mm -hmm. or, or coping mechanism and that mechanism then takes over your life it yeah. shifts from the thing that's helping you yeah, yeah, yeah to the thing that is causing even more problems the cure becomes worse than so the i think this stigma around it is more that knowledge mm -hmm. right that that something's broken and when they watch people 
try to fix their brokenness with something that ends up taking over their lives. Yeah. That's the, it's, it's a, it's a lack of control, Mm -hmm. right? It's a, maybe it's a character flaw, right? Mm -hmm. People might, might view it as, well, you're weak, right? right? Because you couldn't, you couldn't deal with your pain. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about it in that. I mean, I guess I had, even just while you were talking, I realized, okay, there's two things here happening like any good yeah. <laughs> in thought there's more than one thing going on yeah so there's the kind of internal uh john is using this drug narrowin to use as a kind of salve against his pain of losing his son and like the primary pain of losing his son and the secondary pain of it driving away his wife who from the videos it's clear that they had a good relationship beforehand and Actually, one of the nice things about the movies at the end, they are back together and she's pregnant again. And the the loss of Sean, their son, seemed to be the only thing preventing them from loving each other. Yeah. Which made it really, really sad that he couldn't. So he's he's using this drug to cover up his pain, which not ideal, <laughs> to yeah. say the least, right? Not, like, not something you want to do. There's something to be said there for therapy and counseling and maybe some sort of program because there's, this is not sustainable. But then there's the thing that I, I guess I noticed m- more intensely, which was interesting to me, was how Danny used that, the fact that he took drugs as leverage to get what he wanted at John's expense. And to me, that would only work in a society where you look down on people who take drugs or think that's a deal breaker for your job, let's say. Now, maybe that's a much deeper topic on well, what is the ethical relationship between drugs and someone who's law enforcement, right? Yeah. Or something like that, which is a very long conversation and should be its own podcast. Not just podcast episode, but own podcast, right? But yet, here's the scenario. Danny knows he can use the social leverage of John being a drug addict to to get John where he wants him. Which is fired. Or which is like fired. So. Like, hey, he's not reliable. He takes drugs. And I just thought that was a little bit too easy. Like, I just thought that that was too... Well, and the, and the thing is, we do see with John that he is fully competent and exactly, capable... Exactly, right. ...despite his drug use. So he's a, what we what people would call, like, a, a functioning addict, <laughs> sure, right? Sure, yeah. Like, he's figured out how to find, perhaps... But the, I think the question that, you know, you're always left with is, he's functioning now, oh, right? yes. And... I don't think it's completely unfair. I think you're right. I think what's you, it's being used against him. Mm-hmm. And and we're seeing kind of a manipulation of right. of social norms, like you said, to get what he wants. But that those social that doesn't mean that those social norms are wrong. Sure, but then okay, what would you um, or, or that they're right. Yeah. But let's say you were someone who could adjudicate such a thing. So Someone like Danny comes up to you and says, okay, I found this drug. Well, and we don't even know. Like, he just went into his apartment, so <laughs> I don't even know if that was legal Right, not. right. Did he have a warrant? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He didn't show anyone if he did, at least not on screen. So, okay, hypothetical. Danny comes up, says, hey, John's a drug addict. Here's the here's the um, evidence. I found it in his apartment. Um, you need to do something about this, get him off the case. Now, let's say you are the attorney general or whoever it would have been in that scenario who gets to make the decision. It seems that people in that kind of position maybe need to have more flexibility of mind than to make rash, good PR decisions. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it takes more work, I think, than to just 
reflexively capitulate to a social norm. Yeah, well, and another thing to think about here is movies will portray drug addiction as just or or even alcoholism in a very different light than maybe reality would. Right, yeah. Right, so maybe the thing you need to do when you're struggling with um when you when you have someone under your authority who mm-hmm. who is doing this is like try to help them get them help yeah yeah yeah. right as opposed right. to saying well he's functioning fine i don't want to stigmatize <laughs> doing drugs yeah right 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 so yeah, good point i don't think you i don't think you just want to go to well is it fair because he's still performing his job well yeah like again it's a moment in time mm. so i mean i've there's uh examples in my profession of lots of people who've had to well let's go to um, House of Cards, right? Yeah. One of the main characters in House of Cards is Stamper, and Stamper right, has, yeah. was He's an alcoholic. He's great, hey? Oh, so good. Oh, I love him. And was, a sta- was an alcoholic for so long, gave up his alcoholism, mm-hmm. goes to AA meetings, gives his... Uh, yeah, so Stamper kind of w- goes through mm-hmm. this process of re-engaging in his alcoholism, and it's very destructive. I yeah. think it's actually one of the best... Uh, portrayals of that right and in politics it's like well you can't just ignore and not just politics i think in life you can't just ignore people whose behavior is self-destructive okay right yeah keep going and i think it's pretty it's one thing to recreationally use drugs Mm. it's one when it's strewn across your entire apartment it's very fairly obvious you've been doing this every night for however long Uh uh-huh yeah i guess more and more, I'm just realizing I'm not really thinking about Anderton specifically in this example. I'm thinking of... You're thinking of Danny's use of Danny's this. use of this for his own gains as leverage and the kind of like axiomatic reflective response that maybe an authority figure would have on that kind of thing. And I, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, right? Like even if you have a more or less sound social norm, like drugs are bad, Maybe even if we don't have them be illegal, we want people to know that they can really fuck up their lives on drugs and we want to have appropriate hearts and mind resources for those kind of people. And maybe even that would include some sort of law enforcement stopping you from being involved socially for at least a time, right? Like maybe there is needing to be like rehab and stuff like that. That's all great because obviously the way drugs can mess with your brain chemistry can have catastrophic social ramifications. Think well... And kill you. Yes. Now, all of that can still be true. And people can be cynical and self-serving in the way that they're trying to get that across. Right? Yes. I will. And I'm saying I think it's important for a more maturing society to realize, to, to do the more kind of due diligence work of figuring out what people's motivations are when they're, as it were, blowing the whistle. Right, as they were telling on someone, right? Right. Like who, what, what do you, what, Danny, what do you get out of John Anderton being socially discredited here, <laughs> right? Now, it's hard to tell exactly in the movie. It does feel like Danny has a there little bit a of line, joy. There is a line in the movie where it's like, um, he wants your job. He's trying to get your job. Yes, right? right? So. And this is a much deeper topic than I am even cognitively able to get into right now. I just think it's part of like that more fine-grained attuning of a more mature reaction to stuff than reflexive right right like i'm like the heuristic here is don't always trust your reflexive reaction to things right and danny is depending on that reflexive reaction of the society around him 
in a way that I don't think is as stewardly as it could be to do justice to everyone in the situation. Right. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And I think I would agree with you, like, but I, I think it's just so complex because then you're, then you're prescribing motives to him. Yeah. Right. And then, and that's like, well, how do you figure out what a person's motivation is for exposing? So say, you know, someone was using money from the precinct to buy the drugs. Well, obviously that's wrong. Yeah. Right. And where do you draw the line with there's a problem or, or again, if drugs are illegal and you're a, which they are. Yeah. In this case, Mm -hmm. right. In, uh, in minority report Mm -hmm. and a, cop is using them mm-hmm. well what what standards does that set how are you upholding the law mm-hmm. right so i think i mean it was simpler when this movie came out because <laughs> yeah, drugs yeah, yeah. the question of the the war on drugs was kind of at its zinth and mm. but i think still we have to ask ourselves like what standard do we hold people to regardless of the motivations of the people exposing them yeah, that's why I think there's like two different things happening here. Because if there's no motivation to expose people, then maybe you just don't ever expose wrongdoing. Yes, but like imagine the difference of scenario where Danny is, where he's a person that finds out about John's drug addiction and reveals it kind of like privately, maybe even talks to him about it first, has a more therapeutic mindset. Or, right, then or, a, or aha, gotcha aha, moment. Aha, gotcha moment. And... Drugs are maybe not the best example of something like this, but there are other less valenced things that people still use for gotcha, which is, again, I think me, part of that is people's motivations, but also like just better cultural conversations on are um, stigmas. Like what is a stig, like things that aren't stigmatized in the past can become stig, or like, a good example in present day Canada will be masks. Right. Right. Like as far as stigma goes, if you wore masks in Canada before coronavirus, it was weird. You're a weirdo. Now you'd be almost kind of crazy not to if you can yeah. get your hands on one. Right. So part of that kind of upper echelon realization that our stigma on things change. So we, we, it's not kind of intellectually responsible to have reflexive reactions. So, I think you can be right. Like you can have a really well thought out, well articulated reason for why John should be suspended, let's say, because of his drug usage. And you could go through those philosophic points or you could be lazy, understand that the culture, as it were, thinks drugs are bad. So, oh, he did drugs, bye, right? So it's almost just like doing it correctly. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. Well, the, so, yeah, the moral imperative to uh i mean it's it's the truth in love right mm-hmm. yeah it's it's why are you seeking are you seeking the well-being of your mm-hmm. fellow man or are you seeking their destruction yeah are and you, maybe maybe then a world where danny whitwer is not rewarded for being right that cynical right it's like oh no you're actually not going to get his job because i see how your teeth are willing to come out and bite anyone's neck yeah doesn't mean and that means you might bite my neck one day right so and it's it's funny because danny actually ends up being quote-unquote a good guy yes <laughs> in the end but anyway well it's at least a commitment committed to the law yeah to, i mean i think there's lots to talk about there and we could talk about it much more deeply and i'm sure we will but right um so Next 
um, little thing about John. He has this line when he, because when he goes, he goes to this lady named Hinneman. I don't remember her first name. She's the one who created the precogs. And this line is or so found fun. them. It sounds more like yeah, yeah, or yeah, like developed them. Maybe yeah. would be the right term. And she gives this great line about the desire to survive, and everybody runs. <laughs> he says yeah. that line a couple times. But when John finds out from her about these things called minority reports, which apparently is when one of the precogs disagrees. So it's not that they're wrong. It's just that they see different things and they have a slight disagreement. And then John has the line, what about all the people I put away with alternative futures? So that is his, that is his first thought. Well, that's kind of the thing he's holding on to Mm -hmm. too, right? Because he's spent this entire time watching their visions play out and he sees like it would be rather terrifying and then he sees himself Mm -hmm. committing murder and he's like well i just need to believe that there's a way that i don't do this but that's true that's a good because he even says in an earlier scene he's like if they're not seeing what could happen they're seeing what will will happen yeah so but this is what i liked about him actually this was one of my favorite parts about his character was that he was very committed to pre-crime when he thought it was the truth right and so i liked this part but it's like well what about if it's not the truth am i hurting people who have alternative futures and so i just made the note of he's someone who's committed to an idea only because the data or reality points that way and will change their mind with new information if the data or reality points in a different direction right 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 and that could be a good definition of whatever the opposite of an ideologue is Right. <laughs> right. Right. And well, it's like an open minded person who's who's willing to mm-hmm. a questioning mind. Yeah. Right. Which is what essentially differentiates him from Lamar. You know? Mm-hmm. Like when <laughs> this is a perfect comparison. When John finds out about minority reports, his first concern is about the people who he's potentially harmed. When Lamar finds out about the minority reports, his first concern is how it will damage his legacy and the work that they're doing. And as a result of that, murders a woman. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's the difference of John and Lamar's reaction to the minority reports or finding out that they exist. Right. Which is obviously a great way to demonstrate who our hero versus our villain is in the narrative. However... I guess I just wanted to point out that I, this is the kind of person I love to spend time around. (laughs) Right. The person who, once they hear a new data point, even one point of data, it will kind of proportionally adjust their mental flow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Like, it's the people who, who are humble because it's a humility, right? Yeah. It's people who aren't so tied to their convictions mm-hmm. that they're that they're pushed into reacting to data that that questions their conviction, yeah. right? Because uh, there are a lot of people who will ignore data or mm-hmm. confirmation bias or that kind of thing mm-hmm. if it doesn't align with their. Now, here's a question for you: So those people are interesting to hang out with, and those mm-hmm. uh, and, enjoyable and and but just you ever in passing? It's important to note the ethical difference. Of someone like John versus Lamar and their reaction, right to that thing. Well, yeah, because yeah. one is so committed to an idea that they're. Well, what uh, it's funny because Lamar even says at one point, kind of offhandedly, "Think of all the people that we've saved." 
by doing this. Yeah, so he's but, rationalized it through some sort of utilitarian. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, he has rash. Well, and and the movie kind of is a little bit crass in that it's like it just makes it out like it was about his fame mm. and his yeah, personal yeah, yeah. success is why he did it. But I think it's very possible to imagine yeah. uh, um, a scenario in which he really did morally justify this to himself because of the of the million or whatever the thousands or mm-hmm. or however many people he saved and potentially if it becomes federal and murder altogether so yeah. you know do you kill one person to <laughs> end all murder like that's a question i think for him that he answered in the affirmative right where i'm not justifying it but what well I'm but s- in reality it's not that simple of course right because there's so many other factors that anyway we don't need to cloud it there but i mean like obviously some of those people well, essentially, then, what you're saying is Lamar is justifying the, in this specific subset, you're guilty till proven innocent, and you actually don't have an opportunity to be proven innocent. Oh, and there's also the <laughs> the ends justify the means going on mm-hmm. here, right? Like, yeah. he, he believes that his vision of a murderless world right. can be perpetuated by murder. Well, and I mean, maybe this is a bit controversial, but far be it for me to not uh, wander into any hornet's nests that happen to find my way there. <laughs> Obviously, Me Too has been, in general, a really positive social trend. I think it's important to oust any sort of like sexual assault or untoward behavior that is kind of, if not criminal, it's certainly at least creepy. But I think there are aspects of it, and I've seen in the corners of comments like, well, what about men who didn't like a bad date is a bad date worthy of the same kind of outrage as sexual assault or rape like probably not and then um what about people whose reputations get damaged but maybe they didn't do something as heinous as their damaged reputation like does that not matter and the edge of the comment sometimes and this is not i don't think the mainstream but it's out there it's like well Men have been having their way for so long in the world. Who cares if a few good ones go down while we get this happening? Yeah, right? like the idea that... You, and I mean, that's kind of the Lamar mindset. Yes, right? I think that is his When mindset. he knows about the minority reports that can exist, he can say something like, yeah, maybe 4% of these people would have had a different future, but we stopped the rest, so that's okay. Well, and interestingly, there's, that's no, fundamentally there's different. no minority report for John. Yeah. And yet he stops it. So like that, that, well, yeah, makes, yeah, yeah. that brings that's, the whole thing. That's actually to me the most important part of the yes, movie. Yeah. So, so anyway, I just thought that was an interesting comparison between the two. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not really spelled out in the movie. You just kind of have to do the connecting the dots yourself. No, but it was that. something that I personally noticed mm-hmm. quite vividly. Yeah. And so I loved John's reaction to Hinneman, and that was so cool. I thought. Yeah. John, John has the proper reaction where he, what he cares about is, he's very on the justice side of, you know, I'd rather a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent man. Right. And so that's kind of the, um, basis of at least, you know, English common law, Western jurisprudence is based on that notion. And what was cool again, just to put a bow on this point is that that's actually still John's MO. That's still what he believes. He just believed that the precogs, were infallible, infallible yeah. basically, yeah. right? And the moment he found out that they could not be, he changed his tune. 
Which is important. I think it's interesting. He changed his tune also because Mm. I mean there was a very personal. Oh yes, he had he had a lot of personal motivation to find. Well, that survival instinct is what Hinneman also references and is even deeper than political philosophy. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) let's say right or even when the the rubber hits the road, I think (laughs) she says, you know, you're going to make a choice based on survival. Yeah. Two last things about John. One very quick, and one I think you might like. So. What I what I like about what he does is that scene after he gets his eyes put in and the spiders are coming in, it's actually kind of cool filming. So he puts himself in cold water when the spiders are coming because he knows that they're heat-seeking or they're thermal. And so it's knowing your opponent's weakness, right? And it's a kind of art of war thing is that John knows how to deal with his opponents because, well, I mean, in the narrative, he, he is them <laughs> for yeah, most of the movies. He so. has, like, full but knowledge of them. It's like, if you want to take it, it's like, he knows what to do because he's studied what they can do. Now, it turns out, if the spiders hadn't found him and scanned his eyes, he would have been real fucked Yeah, because <laughs> the guys were going to come at the door. But he doesn't know that, right? Like, as far as he knows, he just has to hide from the spiders. So I don't know. Like, I just thought that was cool. Like, again, showing that competence. Oh, look at what this drug addict can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it is interesting, and it also goes to show that the most dangerous people for an institution mm-hmm. are the people who know the institution. Oh, yes. Right, because they know its weaknesses in a way that mm-hmm. o- only an insider could can truly bring down certain things. Right. Well, whistleblowers are always on the inside. Yeah. I mean, that's almost a definition of them. They yeah, have to be, and right? it's not just whistle- whistleblowers, but it's like, the people who run the system know the system. Often they're the people you can't get rid of, even if you want to, mm-hmm. because they're the ones that could, could take you down. Right. Right. Yeah. I, so I just thought that was cool. That, uh, yeah. I, I was like, oh, yeah. Once you know, you become more dangerous. I mean, obviously, he's the most dangerous. He becomes the most dangerous person to pre crime. Yes. Lamar knows this because he finds out about Anne Lively, right? Yeah. The mom. So anyway. And then this part, I, I really liked this. So. Uh, near the end of the movie when John is on the phone with Lamar and basically the gig is up or the jig is up and you're you're screwed. And then Lamar talks about Sean and then John just kind of yells out, you used the memory of my dead son to set me up. And it made me think of something that I think is really important in life. And somehow we've gone this many episodes without talking about, which is the concept of righteous anger. Ah, because true. I found that to be a moment of he's obviously angry and he ha- it's it's anger is almost always a bad emotion except for the sliver of time where it's righteous and not just self-serving righteousness but like actual legitimate righteousness. Now how are you going to carve that up? I mean, we do our best. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but it seems to me given the context uh, John had every reason to be angry with Lamar because Lamar did use the memory of his dead son to set him up. Like, what could be more righteous kind of anger, dis- yeah. despicable of a thing for Lamar to do that would make John righteously angry? And then I was like, we haven't talked about righteous anger ever. That's true. On this podcast. That's so true. I feel like this is something you might have some cool thoughts on. So what's your thought on, you know, mm, I think you and, I, Dumas, can ag- you and right? I can agree John had a good reason to be angry yes. in that moment. Yes. He was tricked well, in the I most think, despicable way. But what do you think about righteous anger in general? Okay, well, first I'll say that I think you can very often use justification, like external 
validation or justification for your anger right. that isn't actually righteous anger, right? So, um, <laughs> which is that self-serving? We all know people yeah. who have a sense of justice that's off, out of whack, <laughs> and those people will yeah. will utilize the the feelings of being wronged or victimized mm-hmm. to fire them up themselves up mm-hmm. and then they will become very dangerous because they have a level of conviction right that is terrifying because now they not only do they have the conviction that they're right they have the conviction that they've been wrong mm-hmm. and those so i want to preface anything i say about righteous anger by saying that is a real and present danger for anyone who wants to make the claim mm-hmm. that they're righteously angry sure well, yeah, I think a, a clue that you're not showing righteous anger is to say you are. Yeah. I, <laughs> you kind of need someone else to be like, no, nah, they were justified. In yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll give an example from my own life, okay. actually, where I think yeah. I was justified in it. Well, again, <laughs> funny. At one, my, my, I love my parents, and they're very religious. And, um, and one of the rules they have is that you can't sleep with your significant other in their house, mm. right? You can't sh- share a bed. And that's fair. It's their house, their rules. Right. However, I, I brought uh, a, a girlfriend home to, to spend some time. And my mom felt the need to take her aside and tell her this rule herself. Okay. And like kind of, you know. Yeah. And it was very awkward. And I got very upset with my mom. And I said, that's not your place, mm-hmm. right? Like... I, br- I brought this person to come visit and I was quite upset. And when I, and I, as I was upset with my mom, my dad came into the room and at first he's like, why is my son being so angry with my wife? Mm. And he was, he had his backup. But then when I explained the situation, he's like, oh yeah, she, she shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's just an example. Like the rule is okay, but it's still not their place to say that to her. Well, it's like, Assuming that I a hadn't and like right, yeah. I think it was just like it's just not. Uh, I I understand, and I also my mom's lovely, and I I completely <laughs> understand her uh, her desire to kind of communicate that in a sure, but she just wasn't. I didn't think it was right. So then I felt I felt that sense of needing to address that because I mean it made it super awkward for. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend at the time, right? Like, oh, yeah, that would be difficult. Yeah, <laughs> right, that was what was aggravating me. Was yeah, she was yeah, making yeah. something awkward that didn't need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, righteous anger. Mm-hmm. I think it can be one of the most powerful tools Yeah, when it is towards people for not what they did to us, but what they do to others. Mm. So an example of righteous anger is I think people who get furious with human traffickers mm-hmm. and just feel like uh i mean it's what's that movie um with with liam neeson it's with liam taken neeson. yeah taken right mm. and the people love that movie because yeah yeah because yeah. that's righteous anger like the, he's he's angry at these but again with liam neeson again it's a per, it's more of a revenge story because mm. it's his own child yeah but i think they just happen to be human traffickers yeah. <laughs> i think that anger anger at that kind of injustice or that kind of evil really has to be towards not something that affects you. Okay. Right? Mm. Uh, more so than... I mean, this is just me spitballing, right? But, okay. But I'm, I think to truly have, to have it be righteous, it has to not be personal. Mm-hmm. So, but... It was kind of personal for John. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't know if it's... I mean, I I think he's justified in being angry. Mm. But is it righteous? 
I, I think it's, well, it might be righteous in this sense is that John knows Lamar used the thing against him that would make him basically do what Lamar wanted, even though he didn't know that that's what Lamar wanted. So he knew, like, <laughs> keep this all straight in my head. John knows at the end that Lamar knew the thing that would motivate John's behavior to do what Lamar wanted because he knew the thing that mattered the most to John yeah. and then used it trivially to get his own way, right? And so both because it's the memory of a kid, basically, and that Lamar used it for such a self-serving and dastardly motive, that's what made him angry. And so even though it affected him personally, I still think it was righteous anger because he's angry He's angry at what Lamar did, but he, I would argue philosophically, he's angry at the fact that basically Lamar used the deepest thing that John cared about against him to make him weak and for Lamar to get something he wanted out of that. Right. And I'm not saying that that anger was unjustified. Right. I'm just saying, I guess if we're like speculating on what righteous anger looks like, Mm. I feel it's very hard to have righteous anger about yourself because- that water gets too polluted, right? Yeah, I guess. I still think I, I still feel tempted to call what John was feeling a righteous anger, even though it was about him. And I think part of why it works emotionally for us, the audience, is that John has spent basically this whole movie not being angry. Like he's not an angry person. He's like a sad person, and he's a competent person, and he's like trying to help in his kind of weird stoic way and his stoicism breaks down when we see the scenes with him remembering Sean. Right. So basically the whole movie, he hasn't really been angry. He's been a lot of emotions, but angry hasn't been one of them. Right. So we know he's not frivolous with his anger. anger. And so I think it is kind of partly maybe, maybe another element of righteous anger is maybe for people who do get righteously angry, it's the only time they get angry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Like maybe it's, it's when you don't, use it frivolously when you do use it it's i mean in a sense this is kind of how at work with the kids when i work when i'm at work i don't use a serious voice until i mean it right right because you have to i use different i use fun tones of voices or i use even when i'm asking them to do things i'm asking them politely you know i i always uh, you always speak respectfully politely to the kids so that when you actually need them to listen to you and you use a serious voice it's going to be so different from the rest of my presentation to them that they know that i mean something really important and really different right and that's kind of john it with anger yes in this movie right. so maybe that's just another point to it right yeah yeah so I don't know. I mean, that would be an interesting. I mean, there's no way to like settle it, but I would. It'd be interesting to hear more about like what thoughts on righteous anger are. Like, what would cons- what would constitute it? <laughs> yeah. What do people What do people think on it? Right. Yeah. So. Anyway. So if anyone wants to, you know, <laughs> really true fiction at gmail.com. <laughs> send us their thoughts. <laughs> Quickly, a couple things about Lamar, our villain. Uh, he has this line: "You'd think we'd have found a cure for the common cold by now." And this is a line he says while John is trying to explain to him about Anne Lively and about Danny Whitwer and all of this stuff. Well, it turns out he's downplaying a really serious thing, and there's misdirection going on here. So I always, I mean, always, it like never actually happens in my real life, but I have paid attention to the notion of people who still do small talk after you've brought up a serious thing right? 
It's like, hmm, there's something else going on here when there's like a there's like a non-proportional relationship or there's a misdirection going on, right? Like misdirection is the magician's bread and butter, mm. but I think it's also the kind of conniver's bread and butter, right? Or the, the ulterior motive person's bread and butter or someone with an agenda. So, Or the person trying to hide something. Yeah, and I think it's narratively, again, it's an awesome little nod of the head to him as our villain, it turns out, right? Because it's foreshadowing in a sense. Um, right. Because in that scene... I mean, and it's funny because of the coronavirus, but you think we found a cure to the common cold, right? <laughs> I know. And then we're all sitting there being like, whoa, yeah. we haven't even found a cure to the <laughs> anything. But we don't know this at the time. This is why it's great storytelling, I think, is we don't, as the audience, if this is the first time watching Minority Report, we don't know at the time that Lamar is the bad guy. So we we perceive his kind of flightiness is maybe just a personality quirk and then when after john tells him about ann lively and he thinks danny is trying to do something dastardly he focuses on again john's drug addiction yeah right as opposed to what he's been told now just as a storytelling that's kind of cool because we're like thinking he's caring and then reading back, we're realizing he's misdirecting again. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's no deeper than that point. Is it? He's right. just, it's a lot. Misdirecting. Is, that, is that pay attention to misdirection, which is maybe it's this. Well, I guess it's a movie thing where it's just so much. Every time you get an awesome twist in a movie, the next time you watch it again, knowing the twist makes everything that much more delicious. Yes. Yes. That's one. that's one great thing about uh, uh, an awesome plot twist lets you enjoy the same movie twice. True. <laughs> I mean, look at a lot of Nolan films. Exactly. Scorsese. Yeah. Every time I watch Memento, I'm like, holy crap. This is a lot of stuff that yeah. didn't need to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he he chooses to kill himself, which is kind of his redemption thing. I, I think there's no other way to really redeem him and other than that. But... I like that John had to have his crime shown in front of everyone because part like the video was broadcast of him killing Anne Lively to that whole gala yeah. of people. And so social opprobrium was crucial. Why do you think social opprobrium is crucial, David? Well, when <laughs> it's you're, pretty obvious, but I, I don't know. Like I, when you're dealing with powerful people, mm -hmm. they can discredit your claims mm -hmm. without overwhelming evidence i think of someone like harvey weinstein right who right. was able to hide his um abuse of of so many women yeah because he was in a position of power and people were afraid of exposing him mm -hmm. right so i think the reason and i'm sure you you probably brought it up for this purpose but mm -hmm. I, I think the reason that you have to publicly expose this kind of stuff right is be and, and very vocally kind of make sure everyone's aware of it and there there's really no possibility of denial is that if it can be swept under the rug mm -hmm. it will be swept under the rug right well and in a world where you like a powerful person or maybe something more primal or primitive in human history if you don't have like a strong kind of social structure to punish people who do terrible things really all you're left with then is social ostracization. 
Yeah. Right? So social punishing is all you have left. That's why solitary confinement is a punishment in a prison. Even like we're going through it kind of right now, like in a sense, our our isolation is so psychologically difficult from other people because we're such social creatures. Yeah. And so that's why it would have evolved in the sense it did, I think. And so it's just, I like, I don't think it's well articulated as that as a punishment is actually so deep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a, an ancient idea that um, exile is worse than death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think we underestimate how, I mean, in a modern world where exile is a lot harder because mm-hmm. of, of our connection to each other. Well, and I can give you a modern example even too, because it's not just physical exile, it's kind of social exile, right? Which can be terrible. When I lived in Korea, there's this one bar that allowed you to have a tab. And generally, the kind of like unwritten rules, you when it gets to about $100, you pay it kind of thing, right? It's one girl, and I mean, this. I think this is utter foolishness on the part of the uh, establishment, <laughs> but yeah. whatever, it happened. This girl got up to a, over a $1,000 tab, and then her contract ended, and she just left Korea oh, and didn't pay no. it. So she owed $1,000 to this bar, didn't pay it, just left. So there's like no enforcement possible. So what happened is this bar just posted this on Facebook and tagged everyone that was known. Right. It's like this person owed this much money to this bar, used this much money worth of services, didn't pay and left. I want you all to know that about her. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work? Well, I mean, work, like what, what would work be in that situation? I mean, to be honest, she was someone that wasn't very popular in the town already. So right. it's not exactly a surprise. But I think like what else could that bar, bar do? do other than socially shame? And I think it's funny because on this podcast we've talked often about how social shaming is such a negative thing right but it's not because it in and of itself it's negative it's that it's used frivolously well it's a governor on civilization too Mm -hmm. right it's like you want people to feel shame because if you don't feel shame and you don't feel emotions then you're actually well probably more dangerous and you and i have talked before about how nothing is socially sustainable like reciprocity yeah. Right. And essentially what this girl did was not hold up her end of the bargain and to function into the future with other people, you need to know the people you can rely on and which ones you can't. Right. Yeah. This is a truism. And part of social opprobrium and ostracization is if done properly and legitimately, someone has really not kept up their end of a bargain and everyone else needs to know that. Partly to shame them, maybe that like there can be like cathartic interpersonal reasons why people want to do that, but also because uh, <laughs> next time she asks for a tab at your bar, you got to know that about her and say, no fucking way. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. Like there is an element of the future unsustainability of your relationship with this person that I want to communicate, not just to shame her, but to let other people know, right? Which is maybe the more laudable reason yeah. for doing that and just functional right? Like there's a function to knowing who you can trust, not just a good relationship No aspect. No. Okay. Agatha, her line, I'm tired of the future. And so one of the great motifs of this movie is the fact that the precogs and Agatha is the strongest precog. They can only live in the future, yeah, right? The like their whole lives are in the them, future. Yeah. 
and <laughs> to say the precogs are stressed out seems to undersell it yeah. to a degree, right? Like they're just ang- they're just anxiety through the yin yang, and that's why the end of the movie is cool when you see them kind of peaceful and reading and having a good life all of a sudden. And and but like the motif of I'm tired of the future. So the precogs are, for lack of a better term, literally living the way we do, figuratively. Right. Like worried about the future, anxious about the future. They're living they're, in... They're actually anxious about the future because it's happening to them. Yeah. They literally can't live in the moment. That's why it's such an interesting, like a, a kind of a really cool line when Agatha says, is it now? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So this idea of being present, there's almost a, 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 a way of where we trick ourselves into worrying about the future that imagine if we were car- creatures that couldn't not live in the future, how much we would yearn for it to just be now. Right. And, for the stillness of this moment. maybe not even to know, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. well, the weird part is, I mean, this gets into time travel and all that <laughs> stuff, but sure. this, this living in the future, see, and they only seem to see these murders and it's, it's not something that's well addressed in the sense that, I mean, all you really get is, oh, murder, like, but the other thing that's not really talked about is they're trying to make this a federal program. Mm-hmm. They only got three precogs. Like, <laughs> yeah, they how many three. murders are these people going to have to witness? And not only that, like, it, are they are they cognitively capable? Are they emotionally and cognitively capable of even even, like... Well, that doesn't seem to be a big priority for no, anyone. It's not, nobody <laughs> seems to be paying attention to that, which bothered me the whole movie. It's oh, like, man, it made me realize it could get even worse. Like maybe Lamar is going to take even more kids from their parents. Well, yeah, who, prob- who knows, yeah. right? Um, but okay, yeah, you're right. Literally, it's nonsense. Yeah. So I think it works much better as a metaphor of, I feel it a bit in myself, like this kind of like anxiety and i'm not an anxious person by any stretch of the imagination but i'm feeling some anxiety about the future yeah with, with because what's going of on right now covid and being temporarily laid off etc so how healthy is that well, <laughs> right? i don't think like, it's healthy at all and i yeah, yeah, yeah. i think well one of the things that i've been talking a lot about with people lately is the idea of expectations and mm-hmm. and you really brought this into focus on the ayn rand podcast for me Mm. where i think i'd always kind of known that you know it's the journey is the destination and all those cliches but the way you put it is like what is what makes hank reardon successful Mm -hmm. and it's that he loves the process what makes what makes dagnit what makes her successful it's the process Mm -hmm. loving the process and then there's that old you know adage happiness is reality minus expectations well, then we go to if you're always thinking about the future, mm-hmm. if you're always thinking about outcomes, and you're always looking towards goals, and you're and you're striving towards yeah. some whether you're whether you're trying to avoid some future mm-hmm. like murdering someone, or you're trying to achieve something like yeah. There's that funny little scene where there's people in in those boxes experiencing different yeah, things, yeah, yeah. and there's the one guy who's got all the people around him just giving him praise and congratulating saying he's the best. him yeah. and like if that's what you want to live for if mm. that's what you're longing for in life i don't think you're ever going to have that peace of the now yeah because mm-hmm. how could you mm-hmm. you're not even thinking about the now yeah it's always tomorrow in your world yeah uh, so that, i think that is an interesting 
reflection and and then and how happy she is agatha takes that to the logical conclusion yeah she can't live any she can't live in the now only in the future and it's terrible for her yeah she doesn't and she's like (laughs) is it is it now yeah and and maybe that's a question we should all be asking (laughs) ourselves more is it now well this is what i mean like this is what i think was one of the really deep points in this movie in this in the storytelling there's some really deep philosophy going on in this movie and one of them is, I'm tired of the future. Is it now? Yeah. You know, maybe more. That's like a more like kind of wisdom, more than philosophy aspect of it. But still, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. So one of the things about this movie is that other than Wally, no one actually cares about the precogs as people, right? And I think that's part of Lamar's intent and he knew that if there was a, it was known that the one of their main precogs had a mom who wanted her back, there'd be like a lot less public support for pre-crime, right? And so I thought it was really cool how Agatha, she kind of sells the reasoning of, I mean, John probably would have done it anyway, but she tells the story of what Sean's, Sean's life would have been to John and Laura and it builds empathy. All of those things, Sean, you didn't get. But also but I, my mom didn't get it either because her little girl was taken away too. And that was like the only part of the movie where it was seen as her as a person. Yeah. You know? And I thought that was cool. Like that was a kind of emotional climate. That was probably more for the audience, yes. I think, than was for the characters in the movie. But I love that it was added. There's like, okay, this is actually like telling a story and building empathy is how we're going to make sure we care about you properly. Right. You know, letting us know more about you. And it's cool because it's reflective in that she lets John and Laura know more about her by showing she knows more about them. Right. So that it's an interactive interplay between people in that, right? True. Which was that is wise good. of her. Yeah, <laughs> it was. My only thought about Danny, maybe you have more thoughts about Danny, but... He was such a smart guy, but he was like not, he just quite didn't know who to trust. Well, like, yeah, do you think there's anything gonna... deeper about his character other than it was a fun narrative in that he's set up as the bad guy or at least the person we're not supposed to like, but actually he would have helped John. Like he did help John. Like he was so true, again, because he, like similar to John, and this is a good cop trope, he was true to the evidence. Yes. So once he saw the orgy of evidence, okay he's like i've never you know how many orgies i've been a part of (laughs) i like that line yeah danny's not a well-developed character at all that we're not we don't get to know any of his internal workings or very very much about him at all he really is a plot device he's just very smart he's smart and he's a plot device Mm -hmm. right the only thing i noticed and this isn't even really a, a noticing is that he was so smart except he didn't know who to trust like how did that happen well, I mean, we're not really given any evidence that the person he's trusting shouldn't be trusted. Right? Yes, except that he does. Well, you'll notice right at the end of when he's telling Lamar about Anne Lively and what's happening, he says, of course, it would have to be someone who had access so, to yeah. the inner files. And he, then at that moment, he probably realized it had to be someone like Lamar who would have been. Or it might that. be that he knew it was Lamar, mm-hmm. but he trusted in the precog situation so much and it was here's a here's a little thought it's not really about danny (laughs) right but it's 
one of the greatest human like the number of people who have died believing something was true that wasn't true oh yeah right and yeah. you can and i think we even see this with covid is when things change mm. some people just don't keep up right and i think we've talked about doing this and i want to do this but in the book the stand yeah yeah, uh, yeah. there's a there's a number of great scenes and this doesn't do anything to the plot but there's a number of great scenes in which people just die mm. because they they are not they they haven't adapted to the new reality yet. Mm. And we see that with Danny, right? He hasn't adapted to what reality is, which is that there are no precogs right now because Agatha has been kidnapped and the right. whole program isn't working right now. And he hasn't adapted to that because mm -hmm. he's used to a world where murder just doesn't happen yeah. anymore. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So I was like, oh, Danny... <laughs> An idiot. <laughs> you should have figured this out before you went and told well, someone. It's a, and it's a shocking moment where it's like, oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, I'm sure there is a, a a word for it in movie making, the turn or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the only other thing I liked, it's just, it's so cool. So Laura, who's John's ex-wife, wife, I don't know. There's a great scene where she's helping Lamar at the end after they've haloed John and she is able to pay attention to Lamar's Freudian slip. Yes. Right? Where she notes that she, she, said. she didn't say that uh, Anne Lively had drowned. And yet Lamar said the drowning of some woman. Right? So the only way that could have been the case is if Lamar already knew she drowned. Because yeah. she didn't reveal that. And so then the, the kind of real life note I made is it's so hard to keep deception straight mentally. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I think that there's a smart little nod there is that of all the reasons why telling the truth is better is that it's also easier yeah yeah <laughs> right like over a long period of time all you have to do to tell the truth mentally is track reality yes you don't have to keep track of the costs of who you've lied to about what you, you know yeah. Right. It's a similar kind of argument I've heard about why one of the reasons free societies, not like forget ethical reasons, one of the reasons free societies are better is that you don't have to pay the overhead costs that come with being authoritarian. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you don't have to pay as much money to your soldiers to go terrorize your people. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a you lot. don't have to, you can incentivize your people to do things instead of force them. And there's just human capital, like and that can, like the way maybe an economist would think about well, it. Well, getting someone to do something out of fear as opposed to maybe self-interest, mm -hmm. you have, like you said, there's yeah. a, there's a lot more overhead. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to be able to prove and that they should be afraid. There's a lot of overhead cognitively with deception. Yeah, and we see the cost of it to Lamar. Basically, he gives himself away. Like he would have got away with it. Yeah, he would have been in the clear if he hadn't had that Freudian slip. I mean, maybe not, but we're led to believe that's why Laura did what she did. Right. By freeing John is because of that Freudian slip. And it's just, I loved that. Because it's like, the reason Lamar couldn't get away with it is because he couldn't keep track of all of his deceptions. Yeah. And I think there's like a deep wisdom there in that, you know? Yeah, isn't it Jordan Peterson who says, tell the truth, and if not, or at, at least, least don't, don't lie. lie. Yeah. And it's, be again, beautiful narratively in that something so simple, 
his little Freudian slip about drowning actually was the house was the card that crumbled his massive house of cards of lies that he'd made about pre-crime. Yeah. <laughs> right? All of it. Pre-crime was eventually shut down because of what happened. Right? One little slip. Yep. I think there's something really important to think about there. So that will bring us into the actual philosophy <laughs> going on in this movie. And there's, right. I can't tell if they're like two separate things or they're related, but basically the major philosophical aspects of this are kind of the initial impetus is the precogs are pure metaphysics. There's no way they're wrong. John uses that ball rolling scene even though it didn't happen, it was going to happen. It says uh, the the causation of the ball falling by gravity and the murder happening as per the visions of the precog are just as equal. In They're just laws. Potential. Yeah. yeah, in laws. So predestination basically is being able to be seen by the precogs. Um, and Except then, not predestination because it can be changed. Yes. Well, but that's the rub, right? In that... The two characters who have a kind of a vague sense of the future. It doesn't even have to be distinct. Just even a vague sense of their future are the ones who are able to choose. So then, of course, we've got the agency free will aspect going on here. Yeah. And then otherwise, there are the lines Danny says that are kind of (laughs) a bridge maybe in all this of like, what does he say? He says, science has stolen most of our miracles. The power always belonged to the priest. They just had to invent the oracles. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. Okay, so the setup is we're given a context of a world where pre-crime exists. And my first question was, would anyone murder knowing pre-crime exists? (laughs) Well, I mean, there's the there's kind of that line where it's like even of premeditated murders aren't happening really anymore because they know of pre-crime. Yeah. It's only like in the moment of of, of just being so angry and and like seeing red and losing Mm. your okay well then this is just a very minor of the movie point this isn't even really a deep philosophical point is that it seems to me that the moment that once the world once ever at least everyone in washington knows pre-crime is a real thing and that you will get put in jail for murder every murder at least or red ball crime of passion it's not planned, so you wouldn't have any like control over it, right? There's right. no conscious intent. And yet, it appears the punishment is the same for those people as it is for people who do have conscious intent. True. Right? There's no differentiation of punishment. It's not man's... So, sorry, it's not... Yeah, it's not. It's first degree, third degree murder, yeah, right? And, and there's like a very kind of... It feels like the cops are and the, the laws are hand-wavy about this. Yeah. Right? So it's like a similar... Like the, the comparison I would make is so... There's this rule in the, in hockey in the NHL where if you sh- if you're in your own end, so if you're on your own end of the blue line and you shoot the puck over the glass, you get a penalty because it's a delay of game and it was like I guess it was kind of assumed and and accepted by most of the people who make decisions in the NHL that people like defensemen or anyone in their own end would shoot the puck over the glass instead of doing icing, right? Like right. It, it was a, it was a delay tactic. It was a way of getting a face off. So what happened is they penalized this. So if you shoot the puck over the glass, doesn't hit the glass, doesn't hit another stick, it just goes straight over from your own end, it's a penalty. Well, once everyone in the league knows that it's a penalty to do that, 
you can basically assume 100% of the time it happens, it's an accident. Right. So it's not so it's an intentional so delay. Why is it a penalty? So then you're actually penalizing something that no one is intending to do anymore. <laughs> so now that's a funny right. comparison, right. but I see a similarity here. It's like once the people of Washington know pre-crime exists, they're not going to want, they're not going to any murder for lack of a better term is an accident. Well, and here's a, <laughs> here's a question for you again, inside the movie. Mm. So we know that John's murder is a murder of passion. Yeah. And yet it doesn't come out as a red ball. No, it doesn't because. So why? Well, I think Lamar planned it that way. Right. Lamar, again, using the logic of the precogs can see this way before any of us can. The precogs know that it's going that to... That it's orchestrated. They know that John is going to do this and that it's... But the the wheels are set in motion long before. So really, I guess... I did not even thought about this, but the reason the ball comes out like... Fifth, what is it? Like 35 hours? 36, yeah. 36 hours before the crime is presumably because all Lamar had to do was give... Leo Crow all these pictures and tell him to do this. Yeah. Right? How he knew, I don't know. Like how he knew that the precogs would see that as a murder. I mean, just experience, I guess. Well, really, it seems like any situation in which one person kills mm-hmm. another person yeah. is murder. Well, because, yeah, I mean, essentially, the, the causation that got this going was at least as far as the movie goes, way earlier than other crimes of passion are. Yeah. Right? Now, that seems also a little hand-wavy. I just thought it was, uh, in general, it seemed odd that they didn't even address that issue. Yeah. Because that seemed so obvious to me. It's like, well, if you if everyone knows that they can't get away with murder, any actual murder is an accident. Right. So shouldn't there be a different punishment for it? But... <laughs> I, I like that. I like your hockey analogy too, because it's like it's that's a little mind game, right? Yeah. It's like, oh well, yeah. This and is like, a problem. maybe there's no way around it because if you don't have the rule and enforce it, that if you shoot the puck over the glass, then people will do you're it. You get a penalty, then people will do it. But like almost as a definition, the moment you make it a rule, no one's doing it on purpose, <laughs> which was actually the whole point. You weren't, you weren't punishing the action; you were punishing the intent of the action in the first place. Right. <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> so I just think that that's a funny... It would take a little bit more work so then to bridge I guess that gap, but... The question is, are you trying to make a society that 100% avoids m- murder altogether, right? And mm-hmm. if that's your intention, which yeah. it does seem like a world without murder, right? It seems mm-hmm. to be Lamar's goal, weirdly, um, <laughs> considering his own actions... Maybe it is to to make it just like even in moments of passion, you're like, well, I'm not gonna get away, get away with it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe I guess really all you could do then, without making it more intricate, is for someone in a leadership position to say, yeah, we actually know that because everyone knows about pre-crime, no one's actually doing it on purpose, and we're just gonna bite the bullet and still punish everyone the same anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not a winning PR move. No. <laughs> In the same way, it's not a winning PR move for the NHL to say, look, we understand no one's doing this on purpose, but we're still going to punish it. Yeah. <laughs> they just do it. They don't yeah. say that's what they're doing. They just do it. So I don't know. I don't know. 
but to think about that. Because, like, I think it's a stupid rule. Obviously, in the NHL, no one's doing it on purpose. But it's if you don't have accident. the rule, then people might do it on purpose, right? Yeah, but what if you have the rule that if you do it on purpose, you get a but penalty? How do you tell? And if, you do, if it's an accident, you don't. Well, and then, and then you, you just leave it up to the ref. <laughs> oh, and people already <laughs> love the ref so much. But I mean, like, that's the case with every other penalty. <laughs> right, true, true. <laughs> like, there's some things where, like, that wasn't a penalty. Yes, it was. Yeah, right. We, right. We've handed over that discretion to the referee already for <laughs> all the other penalties. <laughs> true, but not this one. Not this one, no. Oh, that's weird. That's yeah. true. So, so listen all, up, NHL. Yeah, all these NHL uh, owners and rule makers that are <laughs> yeah. listening to us, you know, yeah, get on exactly. This. But to get into the meat of this problem, the lines are like the uh, like I mentioned. So off the top, that line, the commission of the crime itself is absolute metaphysics. Obviously not if John could choose different right? Or the minority reports suggest this. However, if there's a flaw, it's always human. So who wants a, free, who wants a pre-crime that has fallibility? And so we need to talk a little bit about free will because we haven't. So both Lamar and John had something that every person they arrested didn't have. Knowledge. Which was knowledge that the precogs had seen them killing someone right? Yes. No one else had gotten that benefit. So really no one else could so, make that decision. So even a vague, and I mean, it's important, it doesn't have to be descriptive. A vague notion of the future allows you to change it. And I think this is a good setup to talk about free will. Part of the problem historically is that the conversation of free will has existed in a kind of platonic sense. Well, free will is definitely a notion that's been passed through to our culture from christianity yes well yeah the christian understanding of god yeah omniscience Mm -hmm. and And a lot of that theological composition of those kind of things came from neoplatonism a lot of what plato talked about put into christian terms and i think the soul and free will is one of them and so the idea historically speaking is that free will is something humans just have we can choose and neuroscience and even just knowing the causation of atoms and cells and molecules um, has put that (laughs) into question question, right and so yet i was always i always thought that the arguments against free will were both true and missing the point but i also think the original conception through christianity was also missing the point of free will Okay, well, why don't we? Why don't you, in like two sentences, devi- define those two things? So first, the argument or the assertion that we don't have free will. How how is that assertion made? That we don't have it. Yeah. Well, because we are influenced by genes and social environments that we didn't have any control over. So you don't control who your parents are. You are like you don't choose who your yeah. parents are. You don't choose what genetics you get from them. You don't choose. Um, where in the world you're born you don't choose what culture you're born into and then like if you wanted to extrapolate it far enough you don't choose anything that's influencing all the way back to the big bang <laughs> right so it's kind of called determinism i guess and then what would you say that the christian argument for free will is well just that the human ability to choose is the deepest version of how we can judge what they do Right. So, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really get much starker than the fact that if you don't choose to, in contemporary parlance, put Jesus in your heart, then you get the ultimate punishment of hell for eternity. Right. <laughs> right. Like right. the a lot rides on your choice there. But like 
what can you really choose to do given that choice? I don't even really, the argument I have against free will isn't even what I would conceive of as the Christian version of free will, as I more generally called the libertarian version of free will, which is the idea that you choose to choose, which would mean that you choose to choose to choose. Right. Which would mean that you choose to choose to choose to choose. Right. So that the genesis it's, of it's your choices, exactly. And I think even introspectively, you'll notice that things occur to you in a way that you can't say you authored in the sense that your conscious brain didn't author them. So especially like knowing about the subconscious brain, a lot of things just kind of come up, right? Like um, I love this version Sam Sam Harris talks about. It's like, you're no more in control of thoughts that arise in your brain as you are in control of the next thing I say. So why don't we eat owls? <laughs> Right? Right. Did you think I was going to say that? Probably not. (laughs) Right? Is it comprehensible? Can you talk about it? Well, yeah, you probably could. And the point is that my version of why don't we eat owls surprises you in a way that actually your own thoughts do too. Is that you don't author the things like... Well, there's also post-rationalization, Exactly, yeah. I mean, Sam Harris talks about that a lot. The idea that our brains are actually machines that make sense of the world Mm -hmm. and, and, and give meaning to potentially meaningless and and create patterns or here's another example of it have you ever had the feeling where you're just kind of doing something and then like the way something moves around you or a smell it just instantly reminds you of a memory well not not a smell oh sure uh, right yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) so like but even just like a color object moves and you're like oh and then you just have like a flash of a memory you're like why did I think of that? Well, I'll give an, exa- I'll give an example. <laughs> right? This morning I woke up at 5.30 a.m. because I'd had this very vivid dream of a girl mm-hmm. I'd had a crush on in university. Right. Um, and ha- a conversation. we were having a conversation in this dream. Yeah. And then I woke up and I was like, why on earth am I remembering this girl? Right. Like, yeah. I, haven't, I have not spoken to her in over nine years, mm-hmm. right? I have not seen her. And, I, and in conscious life, I almost never think about her. Right. And yet vivid yeah yeah like yeah. like walking on and like conversation and i was saying you know wise things at least i think like about the nature of attraction <laughs> sure, and how yeah. whatever yeah point being the brain does seem to just have a little yeah. mind of its own and so so what i'm saying is that because you can't actually pinpoint a self both physiologically what part of the cadaver is the self if you take it the brain, right? I think the best way to conceive of it is that there's a part of our brain that can do conscious reasoning. And that is the part we call ourselves because it's the part we have the most control over. And you'll notice the subconscious parts that trickle in are also part of our brain, clearly, because it makes no sense to say your memory of that girl you had a crush on isn't part of your memory. No, no. Which, and memories are stored in your brain because where else would they be stored? That's the other weird part. This is where it gets really weird, right? Yeah. A brain that has replaced itself on a cellular level exactly. entirely. Exactly. So it's not the same mm-hmm. physical brain. Right. Um, that's where it gets really crazy, right? So here's the although, and maybe that's maybe that's a like an old wise tale, because I was thinking about I think neurons, do they not last your whole life? I don't know. Well yeah. Well that's the problem. I I would love to hear the old wives tale about neurons. Well it's just the, <laughs> no no, just the idea that all of the cells in your body replace themselves every seven years. Ah uh, yeah, that's And we've be... all heard that, but it could be just completely false. Yeah, but it's more fun to say it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So, okay. This is long-winded, I know, but it's important. And Descartes called it 
it's the ghost in the machine idea, the homunculi, the little man in your brain who's looking at the screen of outside of what you're seeing. Basically, Sam Harris talks about how we, we all feel like we're kind of behind our eyes. Like yeah. there's an eye there. And because science and even introspection makes it seem unlikely <laughs> that that's the case, it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater of, well, then... I don't, I don't free- know if I agree that introspection makes that unlikely. Well, I, no, I mean, because because the introspective part that se- makes it seem unlikely is that even thinking about the fact that thoughts arise that you can't say you choose to have arise consciously makes it seem unlikely that there's a self choosing them. And right. if there is, it's not a self you're in control of. Right, so then it's that free will doesn't yeah. exist, not yeah, yeah. the self doesn't exist. Sure. Because, I mean, I think this is where Sam Harris and I part ways, right? Okay. Where he's like, well, there is no self. Okay. That's that is essentially his contention. But then would And you... I don't think that that's true. I think I think that the overwhelming evidence both personal and corporate as mm. humans is that there is a, a self. We just we don't have enough information to figure out what it is yet. There's probably nothing more real. Yeah. to any individual than the idea of self. I think it's it, it's it... more real than our senses. Because we can we ha- we can we can have it without our senses. Sure. Like, well, but not Helen all of Keller, them. Right. Not without. Yeah. If we had none of them, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that'd be. I mean, there's no way for us to communicate. Well, but this with is a sense this is a, being... this is the contention of a lot of religious traditions is that the self or the soul lives beyond the body. Yes. Right. And since that's a unverifiable, unfalsifiable, <laughs> unfalsifiable yeah. claim. You could take it or leave it at any moment, I think. It's clear in the physical world that it seems unlike... Like, we haven't found any physical thing that's a self, right? No, but I don't think it is. I don't think it's any one physical thing. I think it's... But it's like an amalgamation of several well, different it's, physical it's things? It's the, you know, the, the the thing is more than the sum of its parts. Synergies, like there's there's a lot of evidence in nature that a synergy can become a thing in and of itself. Well, and I I have more theories about this that are more tied to linguistics than external reality, though, which would probably be boring to get into <laughs> right now. I think I would have to say I I just don't know what you're talking about. If about it's, synergies? Well, I, like synergy is a good way to describe a, like a relationship between two things. Well, like maybe the the thing we're talking about is the relationship between the two things. Sure. Right? Sure. But that still means that the things that make the relationship possible are antecedent to it, and that thing is dependent on it. Sure, but like a thing can be dependent on a thing and still be a thing. Uh, I think only only linguistically. And I don't agree with that, I guess, is what I'm saying. I think, for example, your existence is dependent on your parents, but that doesn't mean that your existence isn't there. Yeah, but it'd be crazy to say I could exist without my parents. That's what I'm saying. You can't. Right. But I'm, so, but it doesn't take away the fact that you exist. Uh, you're, you're, the contingency doesn't I think, change. I, I do think the things that we say, like you or me, are useful and pragmatic extrapolations of another body. I mean that that's has, a fine thing to say, but I don't I don't I don't see any more evidence for that than anything else. Well, you can have you can have bodies that aren't nearly as competent consciously sure. as yours or mine, and you can have bodies that without that. And yet the bodies are still there even if 
I mean, the physical existence is there even if there's no other kind of, what would you say, animating force in them. So I don't know what you could mean by existence so, beyond that. I, Without it being a, an, a, a useful linguistic term for us to figure out other problems. Well, okay, so why are we figuring out the problems? We are impelled to. <laughs> Just some... Evolution. Even then, I, I don't think that that discredits the idea of the self. Well, but I, I don't either exactly. And this is just trip wires here and we'll probably lose some listeners. <laughs> I think the self is a perfectly comprehensible language game to play, but it doesn't cash out in any way like anything physical does. So I don't think it could exist without the physical things. And as long as we know that things like the self can't exist without a brain, which is physical, well, that's I fine. Well, I mean, we know that that's not the case because we have already as- extrapolated right. that eventually we will be able to create a self without a brain. Maybe. What, like like know, artificial intelligence. Sure, but it's still dependent on something physical. It's just a different form. Silicone instead of carbon. That's still right. a physical well, object in I mean, the world. I mean, it could be just software. So you're saying it's dependent on the hardware for the well, software. But, and and this exists. does go back to Plato, right? This is what Plato said, is that no, actually, the soul does exist without the physical things. The software exists without the hardware. And I just don't see any evidence for that. And so that's the conception of free will that I'm saying I don't think works. But the conception that does is social. So, like, to bring it back to Minority Report, the free will, as it were, that both John and Lamar are able to show in changing their futures is because they do have a vague notion of what the consequences of their actions will be, right? And I'm saying that's the kind of thing we actually do have educationally, where because we know that alcohol has this particular effect on our brains and the motor functions necessary to prudently and stewardly operate a vehicle are severely hampered through alcohol. So socially, we educate, and then if people still choose to do that... Then we punish. Then we punish, right? So in a sense, I guess I'm saying the free will, all the free will you need is not that like thoroughgoing turtle all the way down, I chose it, but just a kind of degrees of freedom... Do you know enough about the circumstance of your of the human condition that you can make a responsible choice as it arises to you? Which is what John can it's do. It's a strange argument to make that that free will is total. I don't think anyone can can make that claim, right? Like it would be ridiculous to make a sure. I I've never even. I, it almost is. It seems foreign or well, it's strange. Just not impo- it's not important. It's, right. it's a useless thought experiment to think that you have free choice over everything. Like, okay. Like, I, I think that the claim, you know, the, the claim that we do, that there's determinism because of where we were born. Who, well, I mean, it's um, it's redundant, right? Well, it's, and it's I think so, the, it's so obvious has to be meaningless. And right? I think the French existentialists did a good job with that when they said, "Yeah, everyone has different facticity. What gender you are, what mm. your race is, where you were born, how you were born, what your family dynamics were, the wealth of your family, the wealth of your country. None of that is up to you. It's just your facticity. But what you do after that is what matters." Yeah, right. And, I, and so I don't. I think it's like it's um it's 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 drawing a distinction that no one was trying to make. 
right? Um, I don't think yeah, when- that's actually one of the things I thought was weird about the original. Uh, and again, I am not a good or most competent envoy for this argument. Like if you want the best arguments against this conception of free will, you should read Sam Harris's book and other writings on it. Like it's it's like, oh my gosh, I never thought about it like it. Now he does claim that his guess is that most people do have a libertarian sense of free will, which I don't think is the case, but I don't know. <laughs> well, but like, I don't think anyone would make um, so so audacious a claim as to say, well, I chose where I was born. I chose who I was born to. Right. I, nobody. I've well, been- uh, what Sam Harris is saying there then is that that actually, though, he would say logically that, cancels free will, which I think is ridiculous. Well, because it'd be it's interesting for saying, you to talk because about it. Th- then he's claiming that the only way you have free will is if you have omnipotence. Right, the only way that you have choice, right, is if you have all power. Which, if you have the ability to choose before you choose, yeah, which yeah, I guess which is, is like nonsense. It's, but yeah, it's stupid. Um, so I mean, I I would like to talk to him. About so this, then, because I so, think it's a then, ridiculous claim. And then, claim. generally, though, the return is the idea of compatibilism, right? It's like you can live in a deterministic universe and still have enough free will for us to have a functioning social life. Yes. Which I think is actually, I mean, I don't like to just say I'm a compatibilist because what I like about Minority Report, it's that there can be enough randomness in the system and yet enough knowledge about how our kind of general behavior affects the future. So it's like that interplay is allowing for free will. So like I've even related it to like music. So I happen my dad plays guitar, so probably I have some genes in me that make me more able to learn how to play guitar than other people, but I still have to choose to do that. And it's the fact that even though people might be more or less inclined to something, it's that moment of where a particular future is vaguely outlined and you choose to go for it that seems to matter to people. And it's weird even because I don't think that choice Sam Harris thinks isn't important. So no, I think it's I think a very. I think he's got lost in his own intellectualism on this one, which I th- happens to me, mm. happens to people all the time. But like, let's go back to East of Eden. Thou mayest, right? Well, if thou mayest mm-hmm. isn't real, yeah, then that whole part of human experience where we make choice, where we is just imaginary. Right. And I can understand why someone like Sam Harris would go there. Mm. Someone who doesn't want to believe in anything beyond the physical realm would would find comfort in determinism. And that makes sense. Right. Like that is a that is a logical conclusion to a worldview. Okay. Right. It's like, well, if everything is just matter and everything is and, and matter is deterministic from the way that atoms work to the way that cells work to the way that our brains work to the way that we work. Yeah. If you if you follow those steps of yeah, yeah. of your first principles, well then of course he's gonna want to go there. Sure. Because because he needs a, a holistic mm-hmm. Theology, let's call it. Yeah. He needs a, a holistic understanding of the universe. I think that that takes out uh, that's that, that that takes out the necessary necessary humility to know we don't know what's going on. Sure, we don't have a full comprehension of reality by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination, and all personal evidence yeah. in our lives would point to choice. And let's go back to drug addiction. Right. Okay. Uh, there's a great article that maybe we could post a link. On this video or this um, on the podcast too, that is one of the one of the greatest um, film and literature critics writing about addiction. And Ebert 
one of the things he says is the choice you have when you become addicted to a substance mm. is recovery or death. Right. Right? That's a pretty stark choice. And yet we see people make the choice for recovery. Mm. Now you could you could say, well, they were, you know, they maybe they are genetically more disposed to being able to like will themselves through that. You could make all kinds of but I think there is a if you talk to these people, mm-hmm. they would say, Look, there came a moment where I made the choice. Or you look at the people who died. Yeah. They they made a choice too. Yeah. Now, did they know the full con this is actually really interesting because if you know the outcome of your choices, <laughs> you're probably going to be more likely to make a certain choice. Yeah. But you still might not. Mm-hmm. And that's that's your free will. That That's their thou mayest. It's not thou will. Yeah. But that's why I liked John so much is that even in that moment, I feel like he, well, he chooses to not kill Leo, even though he believes that he lives in a world where it's like metaphysical destiny yeah. for the peacocks yeah. to never be wrong. Yes. And I almost would be tempted if I was him in that situation just as an experiment, right? Like, where, what experiments did any of these people do on this? Ah, <laughs> like, well, like, like, did they, did they, do, they test it, right? Did they do I mean, any <laughs> testing about, like, okay, we've got this. Let's not arrest the person, but just physically stop them from doing it and see if it still happens. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, what, ha- what would happen if, well, but then that was the ball rolling. That but was that they, scene. Yeah. You know? Man, it does kind of <laughs> blow your mind a little bit, right? When you're like, I, I think part of it, okay, yeah, it does blow the mind. So I'm thinking, okay, so the problem, I guess, with the ethics of it all is that the cops, the pre-crime cops are acting as if they're outside of the system, just kind of course correcting the system, but actually they're part of the system. Yes. So it's the intolerability of people in the system pretending like they're not in the system and they can manipulate the system, right? Which is why the idea of God is, uh, traditionally has taken on this kind of outside of time and space. That's the person who can legitimately put their hand in the system and get away with it right? kind of right. thing, right? Or Whereas if it's just people, and I think that's what is stimulating Danny's point where it's like, the power always laid with the priests, but they knew they needed the oracle. Yeah. Well, they <laughs> right? need, yeah, they they needed the oracle, to, the people to believe in the oracle. Yeah. For their power. Yeah. And that but their the power conduits. was always an interpretation. Yes. 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 Exactly. And so. Well, this goes back to my earlier point. Okay. Which one? Which is about Sam Harris. Right? Ah, okay. Priest, hmm. and I see him as a priest. They attack an idea with a level of conviction that is persuasive. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to, honestly, I probably shouldn't have invoked his name without remembering his argument right, as well right. as I do. Because <laughs> he does a lot better job of it than I can give it credence for. Well, that's not really my point, though. My point is that priests come at an idea with with so much conviction that they overwhelm mm. critical thinking a lot of the time, right? Yeah. So, and you you see this in... Uh, minority Report. Mm-hmm. Nobody's nobody seems to be questioning this at all, except it. I mean, the Justice Department, except yeah. for Danny, <laughs> yeah. basically sending like, yeah, yeah, make yeah. sure this is the real deal before uh-huh. we before we send it out over the whole country. Because sure. and and then what is the end result? It isn't, and it's actually shut down. Well, that was so bizarre to me. Like, really, the rationalization for this rests on absolute metaphysics. <laughs> Math. Like, well, who and even it does. talks like that? And it does, right? Especially in law enforcement, <laughs> right? It's funny how it is Danny and the Justice Department that are... But they're fully convinced. 
convinced, like yeah. full conviction. Like yeah. the, he says, he he's comparing it to gravity, mm-hmm. saying this is just as real as gravity, yeah. right? And it wasn't. And I think that that's, I I really like that kind of how the movie describes itself, I guess, because it's a similar way of, I think, crawling out of the cave a little bit is, okay, you have this like firm belief of the truth about something, but it's not even, are you right or wrong? It's how would you know if you're right or wrong, right? And those questions aren't even asked until Danny asks them and John starts asking them because his, I know Danny his life's asked, on the line. Danny asks them because it's his job to ask them. Yeah. And John asks them because he's trying to stay of that survival instinct is yeah. hit. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I think free will is a useful heuristic and it's true in the sense that you and I mean it. And I think it's well portrayed in the movie in that once John has a vague idea and I, as of his future, he can change it. And I think that that actually is what it is like to be a person. Yeah. You and I don't know what our futures will be like, but given the kind of creatures we are and the kind of things we're interested in, we have a vague idea of what it could be. And we can, we can guess what forms of our future we'll like more than others. And then we can try, try to make choices exactly. to get us to that. Yeah. But we won't necessarily get there. That's the thing about right. free will, let's say, that's different than the the academic exercise. Is yeah. The outcome's not guaranteed. No. Happiness not guaranteed, yeah. right? <laughs> so the way I'd phrase it, because I've written it this way, Mm-mm. is... um. You know, Agatha's line is, you have a choice, walk away. We have free will at the level that other people care about, but just not at the ultimate level. But actually, the philosophically important level of free will is at the level that other people care about. Right. Not at the ultimate level, which is, though, I think, an anti-Platonic notion. And I am actually, in that sense, I am, how would you say it? I think Platonism is useful linguistically. Right, but not. I'm not sure that I have to think more about about how space. I feel about. I that. actually want to talk to you more about this off, yeah, podcast because I I've actually I even a couple like last week recorded like a 40 minute oh exposition on this theory right a little bit okay so we can talk yes about it yes more. I would like that. Um. So that's. Do you have any other philosophical stuff that came up for you that we didn't talk about? Well, there's more. You can you probably talk about this movie for a long time. Sure, yeah. Like, but um, not. I think we've covered the free will thing pretty well. Uh, it's interesting to me that this precog can go both forward and backward in time. Yeah, there's so much love in this house. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting to me that we we are so yeah weird how it's like it would be the past for them then, but it would be the future from when he left, but then also the future from them now. Yeah, like, how does she? <laughs> Do that. How does she navigate that just <laughs> yeah, so yeah. fluidly? Like she's swimming around and and uh, her ability is absolute metaphysics. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, it's you have. To, there's a lot of suspension of of disbelief right, yeah, that goes yeah, yeah. into this movie that I sometimes flicker in and out of sure, when I'm yeah. watching things like yeah. this. But I think one of the things that I appreciated about the story is how powerful choice is. When um, when confronted with it on these these big questions, mm-hmm. right, and and what choices we and how the choices that we make. So, for example, when when Lamar is given the choice, yeah, 
are you going to let your project like does the end justify the means are you going to let your project become right. more important than your morals yeah that ends up catching up with him be sure you're mm-hmm. there's an old wisdom in the bible be sure your sins will find you out oh yeah right yeah 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 and i think that to me is like kind of the message of this movie be mm-hmm. be sure your sins will find you out not just his uh danny's in a sense that he was so focused on gotcha mm-hmm. that he didn't think about someone getting him. Mm-hmm. He, you know, the hunter became the hunted. Yeah. In the case of John, you know, his his coping mechanism mm-hmm. caught up with him and discredited him in the eyes of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to realize that choices are not just an academic like the discussion of free will is not an academic exercise it has physical consequences yeah well our entire justice uh i mean theory of justice yeah, could, is built on we it we couldn't have justice without choice yeah. and i think i think that's why i get my back up a little bit at this idea that we don't have choice because right. i think then it produces a oh there are no you you Personal responsibility doesn't exist. You mm-hmm. can't be personally responsible well, for something you didn't choose. Uh, this is why I like it as a continuum more than a binary. So Daniel Dennett has this concept of degrees of freedom. Right. So a 10-year-old has more degrees of freedom than a 4-year-old, but less than a 30-year-old. Right. Right? Right. Or um, someone with a brain tumor pushing on their brain, making them do things, has less degrees of freedom than someone who doesn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, so, and yet, probably for classical reasons it's just so much easier to think in a binary, right? Free will or no free will, as opposed to like 10% free will. Well, it's like 45% gender. It's like gender, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. It's way easier to or think. Or race. Right. <laughs> yeah. Ethnicity, right? That's yeah, way easier to think mm-hmm. black and white. It's way easier to think boy and girl, but like, yeah. or, or, but they're, that's not, life isn't that simple. Yeah. Well, and I think we've brought up on the, like, I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, if you lined up every single person on the planet and put beside them the person who is most ethnically similar to them, person to person, you would never see a difference of skin color. Yeah. Right? Ever. And yet, by the time you got from the end, you'd have, like, the darkest skin to the lightest skin. But person to person, there'd be no difference. So it's that continuum. But then if you just take one example away at one end and one example away at the other, and then, you, like, get yeah. your, then you get your binaries, right? Yes. Or your, and, I, and I think that that's, a, that's something I've noticed in many facets of life. And I think free will is one of them, right? Like, I don't think you have free will or you don't. You have more or less of it. Yeah. Based on cognitive capacities. And I guess just to function in a society, we have to have a basic cutoff point. Yeah. It's like, if you have this much free will and you do something shitty, we punish you. Yeah. And if you don't, (laughs) we don't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, what else can you do, I guess? Because we got to (laughs) live. Because then you're getting into like, Political philosophy and where the psychological well, meets, and you're getting meets criminal social, justice yeah. philosophy yeah. and yeah, which is fascinating and but we've been talking too long. I need to get into that. <laughs> so I just actually have a couple story minutia or movie minutia that I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love when movies forecast the future, right? So this is a 2002 vision of 2054. Yeah, and I love seeing this kind of stuff. Right? Right. Like we've recently did Back yeah. to the Future. And then, you know, in, in 2054. <laughs> the way 1985. If we're still alive, which yeah. we, we we could be. I guess statistically we will be. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to look back on 
on what the last 30 well and especially because i like to see okay well what parts are likely and what parts are not and there's already something that's already happening because people are generally identified in this world through their eyes right there's eye scanning and there's two scenes where john is walking through like a public area and the um eye scanners recognize him and so they start Kind of catering the advertisements based on what he's bought before and what his interests yeah. are. And I was like, this totally predicted Google. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. This was, I mean, Google might ex- have existed in 2002, but certainly not at the level the algorithms are at no. now. No. And yet, all of our data, which is essentially what scanning the eyes is, is figuring out your data, is geared toward the algorithms telling us things now, right? Yeah. So like, how like, often does stuff pop up somewhere on your internet? It's like that you've searched. You, yeah. yeah. Like every, well, even just go onto Amazon. Yeah. It's like <laughs> the triangulations of all of my past purchases. Like you'd probably be interested in these books. You'd probably <laughs> like these things. Yeah. You know? And it's like, it's weird, but at the same time, like it saves a lot of time. True. True. <laughs> so I just thought that that was a funny, accurate prediction the movie made. Yeah. Right? To the yeah. world now in a, in a weird way. This was a great example of a movie I thoroughly enjoyed watching again yeah. because of how much fun it was and just it was rich yeah there's a lot of thinking that can be done after i think that's why people like it it's Mm -hmm. like why we haven't done it yet but why people like the matrix because there's a lot of thinking you can do Mm -hmm. reflection you can do that that brings up new ideas yeah i loved that the name of the movie and what john thinks he's doing is a red herring Yes. Because it reminds me of that like idea like sometimes a man meets his destiny on the road he takes to avoid it yeah right like John pursuing his thinking real minority report that wasn't actually real put him in the position to discover what he actually needed to discover. Which is that he had choice, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I think this movie, the only thing this movie actually suffers from is in its, because it's a movie, its inability to more fully flesh out the world that probably was written about in the book. Right. But otherwise I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Really fun movie and very... Like, definitely a movie you have to think about. So, I don't know. Do you have any last thoughts on it? Anything we haven't covered? Mm, No, I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Well, anyway, hopefully, if you haven't seen Minority Report, it's well and truly spoiled for you by now. So, hopefully, you paused it well beforehand. (laughs) And you've already watched it. it. Yeah. But if not, uh, I would highly recommend it. It's a really good movie. And um, it's like... In a career where Tom Cruise has just been in so many great movies, like to me, this is one of my favorite Tom Cruise movies. Yeah, just so I think good. it's, it's one Farrell of his most too. thoughtful ones for yeah. sure. So anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. And we're signing off uh, from YouTube and not YouTube. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye.